welcome to the Tron Church Talking Points podcast. Half an hour of conversation in the middle of the week to mull over uh, some of the teaching we heard on Sunday. Uh, my name is Paul Brennan, one of the ministers in the Tron Church. I'm hosting the podcast today and I'm joined by Willie Phillip and also for the first time, Edward Lobb. Welcome to the world of podcastery. Thank you, Paul. This is a very exciting experience for me. I'm launching into the unknown deeps. <laughs> well, You're natural with the technology, Edward. It's, <laughs> it's very good to have you, Edward. We're going to be reflecting uh, just for half an hour now, thinking about uh, what we heard on Sunday. Uh, Willie was in Genesis uh, chapter 13 in the morning, and Edward. Uh, beginning a series in Titus. So I think we might begin there and talk around a little bit about what we're looking at there in Titus, uh, a a letter uh, which seeks to see godly behavior, uh, which is derived from the truth. The truth leads to godliness. And we're looking at the first part of chapter one there, and particularly on the role of elders, of of leaders. And just going to read one verse, and then we can talk around there. So Uh, Chapter 1, verse 9, says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also (coughs) to rebuke those who contradict it. It would be helpful just to talk around, I guess, the two key aspects of a church leader. One is teaching the truth. The other, what you might call managing the household of God. But thinking first of teaching the truth and just teasing out some of the key aspects of that, Edward. I don't want to pick up on that and we can talk around what, what does that involve? What is, what is it to teach the truth in a, in a church? Well, the truth is a, is a body of truth and uh, the Bible contains it, but it's, it, it's a body of truth that has to be learned. Mm. And for a pastor, for, an, for, for a leader of the church to be able to teach that truth well He's got to study it carefully, and that's something that cannot happen in just a year or two. It's, it's a cumulative process that builds up over many years. But as Paul puts it to Titus here in uh, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Hmm. So it's, it's not enough to appoint a, a man who appears to be godly, who's got a little bit of flair and um, panache uh, as a speaker. He's got to have been taught the truth. And therefore, some real training and careful application to understanding how the Bible all fits together is going to be necessary for that person. The truth is passed on. It's been passed on ever since uh, Paul and uh, Timothy and the others were passing it down the line to one another. So the person who's qualified to be a a church leader and a teacher like this has got to learn the truth uh, before he can really give uh, instruction in sound doctrine. He's got to hold firm to it as well. And the verb there implies a kind of tenacity to the truth. And sometimes he's going to feel that he's holding on to it by his fingertips because he feels the pressure of the world to Mm. let go of it. But he's got to not let go of it. He's got to keep holding that truth, even though he knows that the world is going to say you're an idiot for holding on to these things. Because it's not his truth, is it? It's the truth. Yes. And and it's, 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 it's 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 the message once delivered. That is interesting, isn't it? So Paul here, he's not saying to Titus, um, go and go and use your gifts the way you want to. Go and 
give them what give them your version of the truth mm. it's it's the there's one truth mm. and it's what you've learned and it is it's the true truth you talked about that uh, it's the thing people find difficult today isn't it because <clears throat> i've got my truth and you've got your truth everybody's got their own mm. but this is a monolithic revelation isn't it which is passed on and and so there's a great emphasis on the responsibility you've got to have learned this and you're your job is to pass on what you've learned, not add to it, not subtract from it. Mm -hmm. It's very clear, isn't it, here? Mm. Um, it is, and this is why we have to train our preachers and leaders yeah. carefully so that they know what the truth is and are able to pass it on without messing it up. Then the, mm -hmm. the other side of this, of course, is that the, the leader, the, the teacher, has to be able and willing to rebuke those who contradict it. And that's a pretty tricky thing in this day and age where people very often don't like to be told that they're wrong. So for a pastor to come to somebody in the church and say, brother or sister, you're wrong about this and you need to change gear, to change direction over this, that's quite a big thing for a person to take on board. Um, and many people will say, well, I don't want to belong to a church like this where the pastor comes and tells me that I need to change my thinking about something. I think I'll go to another church where things are easier. But no, it is part of the pastor's responsibility to correct people when they've gone wrong. Um, the book of Proverbs says quite a bit about this, and without quoting a, a verse particularly, the, the basic teaching about reproof in the book of Proverbs is that it's, it's a wise person who accepts a rebuke, mm. whereas it's a foolish thing to listen to a rebuke, a rebuke and then turn away from it. So wisdom consists mm. in listening to a rebuke and then being prepared to, to, to change one's ways. Mm. And this uh, necessity to not only instruct but rebuke, um, you mentioned just a second ago that in this day and age that's hard. Do you think that's something that's become harder as you look back in the, over the decades of your ministry? Is it harder? It's, it's never easy. But are there things about our culture today that make it more difficult to, to do that? Yes, I think there probably are. Um, it's partly because people are increasingly encouraged by the culture to be self-determining and to work out for themselves how to live life. And the whole culture is crying that out all the time. Be yourself, find yourself, please yourself, fulfill yourself, indulge yourself, enjoy yourself, be self-centered. So if, if you're living life in that sort of a way, you're going to find it much harder to accept that there is a body of true truth that comes from God which needs to be conformed to. Mm -hmm. And therefore, repentance involves learning what that truth is and then beginning to live one's life according mm -hmm. to it. It's something inculcated <clears throat> from the very earliest, isn't it? I was very struck at the, uh, the meeting we had the other week <clears throat> um, where Hazel Logie was speaking about how this sort of thing all, be, all, all kind of crept into schools with the child-centeredness approach. <clears throat> and so everything from the very early stage young children are taught that they are the centre of the world. It's what they think and how they feel about things and all the rest of it. And what you're doing there, as Hazel rightly said, is you're, you're teaching a child idolatry, the idolatry of self right at the beginning. Um, and, and that plays into our natural sinful human desire to be our own God and to have the world bind down to us, not us bind down to any. And so that, that, <clears throat> that shows itself, I think, today, doesn't it, in a very anti-authoritarian view of just about everything. Um, nobody has a right to tell me what to think or what to do or, or you know, this is what I think is important. And that's, that is the very antithesis, isn't it, of, of, of the New Testament teaching of 
how things should work in the church and in the world, that we are we're to submit. Uh, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we're to submit to the training and the instruction and the and 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 the admonition, the rebuke uh, of of the truth. But we instinctively find that very hard. But when the whole culture is is reinforcing that, mm-hmm. then we think in the church that that's normal as well, don't we? Uh, who who are you to dare tell me anything? In fact, Paul goes on in the very next verse, verse ten, to talk about many who are insubordinate. Yeah, and insubordinate means I'm not prepared to to accept correction yeah. from anybody. I'm I'm not going to be subordinate to God's word, but equally I'm not going to want to be subordinate to God's the, the leaders that that God has uh, has appointed in the churches. I'm going to be my own person, and I'm not going to be told anything. Shall I tell you of a, of a time when I was rebuked? Please do. We'd love to hear that. I, would. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think at the time I was. You mean about, other than constantly by your children? Well, yes. Thank you, thank you, Willie, for that for that reminder. And my children are little dears. Um, I think I was about forty at the time, and I was on a preachers' training conference in the south of England, and we were doing preachers' workshops, which we still do in the Cornhill kind of context. Um, but as I say, I was about forty, and I was in the small group that was being led by Don Carson. Some of you will know who Don Carson is. He's, he's been to our church and he's, he's done some preaching and teaching for us. Anyway, we, a number of us younger men had presented our outline sermons. And we got to the end of the session and we were just about to leave the room and go and enjoy lunch together. But Don Carson looked at me with a fierce look in his eye, crooked his little finger. He said, Edward, I want a word with you. So I sat down beside him and he said, your outline, you honestly need to do very much better than you've just done. You need to work much harder at working out good headings and dividing up your passage uh, correctly. Now, will you do that? Yes, Don. Yes, I will. (laughs) Now, that was quite a rebuke. I was quite stung for a moment, but then I thought to myself, I'm sure he's right. This is one of the the most uh, qualified Bible teachers in the world, and he's telling a little person like me to to work harder at my texts. And that was a very good thing for me. Uh, So, well, as as I was preparing my sermon for Sunday, I hadn't forgotten that incident, though I didn't mention it. I can tell you another story about about Don Carson rebuking, and it was uh, at one of the early pastor's training course residentials. We were up in the, in Argyll in Tinnebruch and uh, in that particular year there were a number of people there uh, including Rupert Hunt-Taylor but um, uh, Gary Brotherston and Terry McCutcheon were part of it and uh, Gary and Terry being good class, good chaps um, regaled me with the usual abuse throughout the week. Anyway I had to leave early um, uh, but I heard that after I left Don Carson took them aside. In fact, I think he spoke to all of them and said that I uh, rebuked them sharply. He told me they all ought to treat me with a great deal more respect. <laughs> <laughs> However, what I can tell you is that Don Carson's rebuke may have worked its uh, its fruitful purpose in you, Edward. It had absolutely no effect whatsoever on Terry McCutcheon or Gary Brotherson. So. <laughs> even, even the rebukes of the great Don can sometimes be disregarded. <laughs> but they shouldn't be. So if you're listening, boys, more respect, please. <laughs> Very good. Well, um, that's one aspect of, of church leadership is, is teaching the truth and rebuking and, uh, and teaching people in that way. But the other aspect of, of leading in church life involves managing the households, managing the, the family of faith. And I think it'd be helpful just to talk around that a little bit because as folks sitting in the congregation, we see the teaching going on. That's, that's an obvious thing that happens every week, but 
the managing the household is maybe a bit more hidden. We maybe don't see it quite so much. Um, it'd be good just to reflect on the, on the, on the decades that both of you have in terms of, of ministry. What does that involve? What are some of the difficulties about managing the household? And, and why is that such an important aspect of, of church life? Why is it such a necessary thing that um, not only is, it, is the, tooth, the truth taught, but there's managing of the household of faith. Why is that such an important thing? Well, thank you, Paul. Um, I know when I was a young senior pastor in my early 30s, I'd been a, an assistant pastor for some years, but, but suddenly I found myself as a young senior pastor. And I realized at that stage that while I had learnt quite a lot about how to do preaching and teaching, I'd been taught nothing about how to manage a church, and yet I was the the senior responsible person. I remember saying to one or two people, where can I learn these things? And the answer was not obvious, really. So in a sense, I had to start learning on the hoof, and it was very difficult, and there were certain mistakes, and there were times when I realized that the church was not being well managed. So I began to realize, as a young senior pastor, that this was a very important thing to learn. I guess some people naturally are managerial, and others have got their head in the clouds, and they're fine with the Bible, but they're not so good at actually managing people. I found that very difficult to, to learn, but I realized that it was partly a question of making sure that communication within the church family worked well, so that people knew what was happen, happening, knew what was to be expected of them. And the various leaders in the different branches of ministry in the church needed to know what was expected of them. And I had to learn that it was important for me to keep closely in touch with them, to ask them how they were getting on, so that they knew that I was interested in you know, their, their little Sunday school group or whatever it was. But learning to be closely in touch with people so that leaders knew that I was lovingly concerned for what they were doing was an important thing. Um, but for me, it, 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 was a, it was a difficult mm. job to learn that. I don't know, Willie, if you've got things that you could add on that. I'm sure you can. Yeah, I mean, I remember having a great epiphany uh, many years back um, when I think it was a Servant to the Word conference and Dick Lucas was speaking on First Timothy 5. And it was almost a throwaway remark, but he, he summed up the ministry as that, saying it's, it's, it is teaching the people the Word of God, but it's also managing the household of God. Well, I was at the same conference. Yeah. That, that's where I learned it. Yeah, and that's, he was, that's he was it stuck in my he mind. He was talking so. about um, all the difficulties Paul's having in, in, in First Timothy 5 and dealing with these widows that are not doing what they should be doing and dealing with these younger men and older men and all the rest of it. And he, and, and he said, you know, these are the things that we all think are the distractions from our ministry. Mm. Um, but in fact, they're an integral part of the ministry. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you realize that, you, you, you suddenly think, well, this is not stopping me from what I'm meant to be doing. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, 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 was a, it was a great help to me to realize that all these things that I felt were <clears throat> taking up my time away from what I should be doing were actually my job. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's not that you downplay the teaching, but it's that actually managing the household of God really at its highest level it's about working God's word into the warp and woof of the real life of the church so you can have a completely mistaken understanding of, of biblical ministry if you think that it's standing in a, in a in a tall pulpit box spouting out great oration to be received by hundreds of individuals on a personal basis to give them a little spiritual pick-me-up and off they go again. 
that is not at all how the Bible um, is to be understood. The, the, the New Testament makes it clear that the word of God is given to the whole church. Every one of the epistles applies the word to the whole church. And what that means is it applies it to the workings of the church, to the relationships between people, sometimes very acutely. I mean, look at Paul in Philippians, uh, naming people and shaming them, as it were. So he's saying to Judea and Syntyche, you know, you're fighting here, you're affecting the whole church, stop this, and everybody else needs to help you stop this. I mean, that is a very practical thing. Now, that's not the kind of preaching that gets you warm handshakes at the door with kind of a well, lovely sermon uh, minister. That's kind of preaching that gets you dirty looks and people talking about, isn't that outrageous that that sort of thing is being said? But that's the kind of preaching that changes the church because it tackles corporate issues and corporate sinfulness and brings about corporate repentance and brings corporate encouragement and direction and all of these things. And so in, in, in a very real sense, the, the, the major thing in managing the household of God is actually applying the truth of the word of God Yes, in the pulpit, but also outside the pulpit, in smaller groups, in one-to-one -one things, in discussions with people, in, uh, in, in personal words of encouragement, but also of rebuke and, and, and correction and so on. And, and so it is the word of God that manages and rules the church, but it will only do it if those whose calling and duty it is to apply that word don't, don't shrink back from that. And... The reason we have to be told to do that is because naturally you do shrink from that because nobody wants that hassle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nobody wants the, the pushback that you get. We have to deal with a difficult issue that's involving lots of different people um, and says, look, we can't, can't have this kind of behavior. We need to change things here. Or, you know, look, can't you see that this is affecting others and, 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 uh, and so on? So, you know, we need to ask you to, to be mindful of that. Well, those are all the things that get you pushback. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why Paul... You know, to Titus and to Timothy underlines these things because these are the things that are really difficult. It's easy enough to go and spite out and preach a sermon and not really directly apply it to the congregation in front of you, mm. to apply it in general terms to general Christianity and general discipleship. But to do it specifically is actually grasping the nettle. And when you grasp a nettle, you know, it stings. Um, so I think, you know, that that's... The, the, the language he uses of, 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 of stewardship, you know, the steward is the, is the general manager of the whole household. He's the, he's the, he has to sort out the food, he has to sort out the fuel, he has to sort out the servants, he has to sort out the business happening, you know, all the ins and outs of things. And, and the life of a church is just like a, a, a big family in that way, isn't it? There's all kinds of things that impinge on it. And... Um, and that has to be dealt with. So there's a certain degree of of nitty-gritty getting your hands dirty and just having to get on with the job. That it's, it's, Ministry is not an ivory tower. Sometimes people think, you know, it's about doing lots of theological degrees and PhDs and sitting in libraries and things like that. But, you know, that kind of person needs to stay in a library. <laughs> they, they come into the, the rough and tumble of real life. It, it, it often doesn't go very well, does it? So... Mm. I guess that's why, as a church, just coming back to what Edward began talking about, the, the need for training, that is why we link Bible training and hands-on ministry hand-in-hand. Yeah. Hand. So Absolutely. You know, folk trained through the church here in the Tron will have spent five years, yes, studying Cornhill, but five years working in ministry and, and learning what it is to manage manage the household. And yes, it's not, as you say, well, it's not divorced 
from teaching it's working out the implications of that. Mm. So, I that's and actually, that, that five years of training helps to reveal whether a man is the sort of man who's described here yeah. in verses mm -hmm. six mm -hmm. to nine. And just occasionally, an unpleasant revelation is made, and you realize that a, that a mm -hmm. young man who may be quite clever in certain ways is just not able to handle this kind of leadership because his character can't cope yeah. with mm -hmm. this thing or that thing, and therefore he has to be asked to stand down. And that's not a failure, that's a success. Mm. Yeah. Because far, far better that than for it to be discovered much too late when somebody has ruined a church. And of course, the old traditional way that, um, you know, in the, in the, in the denominations, that, well, like what happened when you and I trained for mm. ministry, the local congregation had no part in it. Uh, you went off and applied for ministry and you were seen by some distant committee and you went off to, the, to, to, to you know, do your theology degree or whatever and you came out of it at the other end and people were inflicted on churches. And it was only then that the disasters began to happen. Mm. Uh, absolutely hopeless. No wonder, you know, the, the, so many of the churches are in the mess they're in. Whereas the training and formation of leaders, uh, if it's rooted in the local church, if it's surrounded by people who know them and uh, who are working with them, um, by the end of a few years, everybody knows. <laughs> the leaders have worked with and trained them, the congregation, everybody knows who's suitable and who's not. And, uh, and that's one of the great strengths, I think, of, uh, of more recent years and certainly one of the things that, that Cornhill uh, here in Scotland has helped, to, um, uh, has helped to happen, I think, much more rooted, real training that, that puts together these two things, uh, these two tasks. It's not just abstruse teaching, but it's, um, it's practical uh, engagement in, in the life of people, in the life of the church. Mm -hmm. um, so pe people coming through now have got vastly better training than either you or I ever had. Isn't mm. that true, Edward? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. So yeah. we can be thankful for that, I think. Very thankful. Well, Edward, that's been really helpful uh, on Titus, so we look forward to the next instalment. But just in the time remaining on the podcast, just to reflect on, on Sunday morning, and Willie was uh, in Genesis 13 uh, looking at Abraham and lot and, and I guess asking the big question uh, do do our decisions really matter hmm. and I think you were saying they do uh, our decisions really do matter because they reveal the desires of our hearts and that will ultimately shape uh, our destinies you know we, we do reap yeah. what we sow um, so it'd be good to reflect on that but then also just dig into some practical down-to-earth how does that play out as we as we do make decisions and and what have you observed in in your years in ministry where people have reaped what they've sown and it's, it's perhaps not been quite what they hoped for. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as I said, as I began on Sunday morning with the question of, you know, if God is really sovereign, do our decisions matter? And that's a, that's a question that often people have asked and people got awfully tangled up about. Hmm. But the great thing is that the Bible, <clears throat> the Bible tells us uh, all sorts of things uh, and says, these are all true. So, of course, God is absolutely sovereign. I mean, in Titus, <coughs> where we were in the evening, we were talking about the hope of eternal life, which Paul says, uh, God who never lies promised before the ages began. Well, you know, that is a statement of the absolute sovereignty of God. Paul is, is, is unashamed of that. We see that in Genesis 12. We have the complete pagan pulled out of Ur of the Chaldees um, by God. God just, God just initiates all of that. There's no question about the complete sovereign choice and election of God. 
the sovereign control of God over everything. And yet, side by side, so often in Scripture, we're also told, well, there's another side to that. And Genesis 13 makes it absolutely plain that the decisions you make uh, have momentous consequences. And, and, so, and so God, back to my favorite verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the, the mm -hmm. secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and for our children, that we may do all the works of this law. So God says, stop trying to be God. Stop trying to second guess me. Let me do my bit. Here's what, here's what you need to do. And I put a choice before you. And I'm telling you, here's life and death. Here's blessing and curse. And I choose life. And that's, that's in a sense, the choice that we're, we're facing every day in, in, in decisions, mm. um, big and small. And that's what's been played out here between Abraham and Lot. And again, another thing that's important is that um, we have to take the New Testament guidance on this because Peter tells us very plainly, doesn't he? Righteous Lot. Lot was not a baddie. Like Lot was a member of the people of God. Mm. Lot was part of the family of Abraham. And so we're not having a contrast here between salvation and damnation, but we are being shown a contrast between differences that choices make among believers, among the household of faith. And there's a consecration here that we see in, 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 in Abraham, but there is a very different uh, driving force uh, in Lot. Mm. And this passage plainly shows us Lot sowing to the flesh, as, 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 as Paul would puts it in Galatians. Um, uh, Abraham wants Lot to be in the promised land with him. He says, look, here's the land. It's, there's plenty of room for, for, for all of us. We're just on top of each other at the moment in this bit of land. Let's, let's separate. Now, you, you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. doesn't matter to me as long as we're in the land. As long as I'm in the promised land where God wants us to be, doesn't matter. Mm. Um, but Lot's choice doesn't put that categorical kingdom imperative first. He looks around and says, well, I've got lots of flocks and that place over there looks like it's the most profitable place to be and that's where I'm going to go. And even in this chapter, there are so many hints that this is a bad idea. Lot says, oh, it's like the Garden of the Lord. It's like the Garden of Eden. It's like heaven. It's like Egypt. Well, anybody saying, oh, heaven is like Egypt. Um, when Abraham has just been rescued out of Egypt in total disaster, and when every reader of this under, under Moses has been rescued out of Egypt, knows that's wrong. And, and, and then, you know, at the end of verse, in verse 13, as if we hadn't got the point for the avoidance of doubt. By the way, Sodom, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So, you know, there's no missing this, is it? Lot is making a bad choice here. And we're going to see in the next chapter and in subsequent chapters just what a bad choice that was. Hmm. And so here's the, here's the really difficult message of this. You can be a Christian. You can have your place in heaven. You can, you can be a child of God. And you can still make a lot of choices that are going to mean that the path of your future is blighted compared with what it should be. And choices you make can do that for you and for your family. And we see the terrible entail uh, in, 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 in Lot's family and what happens later on with Lot's mm. daughters. So that is a real challenge for Christians. Yeah, so you, you can be part of the eternal family of God, yep. but making foolish decisions yep. will have real world impacts. Because we can't presume upon God. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's an ocean of difference between faith and presumption. That's one of the things Jesus is constantly saying in his teaching, isn't it? Don't, you know, he's, he's challenging people who... Uh, who are presuming upon their calling and election. <laughs> and, and, 
and the challenge of scripture is no God's calling places a great responsibility on you and the greater the call the greater the responsibility um, and so that that is the real that's the real challenge I think of, of, of this passage and you know anybody who has been a Christian for a time and certainly anybody who's been in Christian ministry for a long period of time sadly will be able to relate not just stories of those who have made uh, decisions which have led to great fruitfulness and blessing but 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 the opposite. Um, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've found that Edward in the past. That people have, have have, yeah, have sown, have sown the wrong way and have reaped. Mm, yeah, yeah, that is certainly so. There are a, a couple of examples that, that occur to me. <clears throat> um, the first is to think in terms of retirement. Now I'm a certified granddad now, so <laughs> my contemporaries are all retiring. Now, what do you do when you retire? Where do you go? There could be a temptation. You might have been a keen Christian serving in a church for many years, but there might be a temptation to go to some beautiful little spot, like somewhere up on the coast of somewhere, in a beautiful place in the north of Scotland. You think, how lovely to go there. I'd rather have somewhere warmer, frankly. I know you would, <laughs> Willie. <laughs> but, but you find your lovely bungalow with its sea view and its smell of kippers or whatever it is, and it, it, all, it all looks lovely. But then you realize, having got there, that there's no decent church there within about 75 miles. So you're depriving yourself of two things. First of all, the opportunity to be fed yourself, but secondly, the opportunity to serve as a senior Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, to retire, look for a good church. Go and live near it. It might not be the, the beautiful bungalow with the sea view, but you can find somewhere nice where you can serve the church and use, draw on your experience and, and also be built up. Another example, this is at the other end of life. I remember a number of years ago, I won't mention her name, but I remember at an evening service um, at the Tron, I noticed, it must have been September, but there was a, a, a young girl who hadn't been to church before, and I, I went to her at the end of the service. I said, who are you and where have you, where have you come from? And she said, oh, I'm from the south of England. I said, really? Why have you come here? She said, well, I wanted to come to Glasgow University because of this church that I'd heard it was a good Bible teaching church that I could be built up and serve well in this church. And that's why I came here. So I thought to myself, what a wise decision mm. that this was unlike Lot. Mm. She looked around and she thought, where can, I, where can I be most useful and where can I grow as a Christian? Mm. And, and she has been for years now well stuck in as a, as a servant of Christ at this church. I mean, there are all sorts of small decisions, aren't there? But but these these ones you're talking about are are, are big ones at key moments in life. So, leaving home and seeking a job or going to college, university that's that's one, isn't it? And 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 what is going to drive that? Is it going to be the place with the greatest kudos for you, or is it going to be the place that is going to um, invest in your spiritual future? That's really important, isn't it? I wonder if many youngsters applying for university, for example, think in those terms. I'd be surprised. But it could be the first job. Now, is it going to be the job that gives you the best salary or the best prospects or the best future? Or how does that, how does that then fit in terms of your, all the things you were saying? Where are you going to be in a church? Where are you going to serve? Um, where you have children, you have a growing family, and you say, well, I want to get a better house. Well, that's natural, isn't it? Nothing wrong with that. But does anywhere in your thinking come, well, where are we going to go to church as a family? Am I going to put myself, you know, far away so that it's a much bigger effort to come to church? And, oh, well, I'll make the effort. But are you really going to? 
I mean, Edward, you live quite a long way out of town, don't you? But you must have had to make a decision to say, if we're going to live far out, we're going to make it our priority to 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 not drift from the church. Mm. And you haven't, but you must have made you must have made that decision quite consciously, did you? Well, interesting you asked that question, Willie. It just seemed to me at the time that there was no other... It wasn't really a decision to be made. It was just the thing that had to be done. Yeah. That if we were going to live out in the country and breed chickens and all the rest of it, the, uh, we would have to travel in yeah. and, and keep coming in and out, in and out, which is, which is what we've done. But it wasn't really a decision. It was, it was just inevita- inevitable. And it's well, in that sense, though, it was an inbuilt decision, wasn't yes, it? Yes, an inbuilt it wasn't decision. The, 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 yeah. It wasn't up for questioning with you. No, no, it wasn't. But, I mean, th- there are all kinds of things, aren't there, that, 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 that will put, if we think about it, will pose the question, am I seeking first the kingdom of God? Mm-hmm. At trusting that God will add the other things, mm. or am I seeking the other things and hoping that God will throw in, throw in the kingdom? And Jesus puts it one way, but not the other way. Mm. And I mean, it's a very practical thing, I think. And you know, it could be applied to any kinds of decisions, not just about where you live or, or that sort of thing. It's, you know, I'm going to devote myself to this hobby or to this sport or to something else. So there's a hundred million things that, in and of themselves, are perfectly legitimate. But the question is, where is it in the pecking order? Mm-hmm. And am I going to put this in first place? And for, for Lot, it wasn't just for him personally. He was the leader of his family. And what he chose mm-hmm. bore fruit great, with great tragedy, didn't it? Mm-hmm. In Lot's wife, <laughs> you know what happened to her, and, and, in his, and in his daughters, which was a grim story. So uh, there's a word here for fathers in particular. Um, your choices, your decisions will reveal the desires of your heart truly and they will affect the destiny not just of yourself but of your, of your progeny, of your family, perhaps of a whole dynasty. And that's, that's the message of that chapter. We can't, we can't get away yeah. from it. Willie was looking at me with those words as the young father in the room. <laughs> and it's, You're not so young now, Paul. It's, it's very, <laughs> almost 40 in fact. Um, <laughs> But yeah, very poignant, and um, I think there's something as particularly young dads in the church, we need to yeah. take that very seriously. And the decisions we make, they will, they will impact uh, how things will go for our children and their children, and uh, for the generations to come. Well, listen, we must draw stumps, and thank you again, both of you, for your work in bringing bringing God's word to us. And you're both preaching this Sunday, so Willie, what do you? What are you preaching on this Sunday morning? Genesis 14, which is a story of all sorts of excitements involving Lot again, and kings and battles and uh, unpronounceable names. So have a, have a read of that before we, uh, before we get to it, and that'll help you. Very good. And Edward, continuing in Titus? Yes, continuing in Titus chapter 1. So the passage for this coming Sunday is the second half of Titus 1, and that is about uh, empty talkers, deceivers, uh, people who are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So it requires a bit of stomach, but uh, the Lord has put it into the Bible and we need to listen carefully to what he's saying. Very good. Well, we look forward to listening to that on Sunday. And uh, thanks for listening to this uh, podcast. Thank you for stopping by. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.